Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another virtual message from the Neighborhood Church. Glad that you're joining us. Glad that you're clicking play. Glad that you're looking at this recorded message or glad that you're listening to this on a podcast. I'm just glad you're here. I'm glad to reach out and connect with somebody as we continue our self-distancing and our quarantining. It is good to be God's people together, even virtually. So this evening, I want to remind you that this is just a piece of the puzzle of what we're up to as a church. Uh, If you're a member of the Neighborhood Church, hopefully you were able to check out a worship video that Kelly posted. Uh, If you have checked this public Facebook page at some point this afternoon, I hope that you saw Carla and Jared and the kids dressed up to reenact the story that I'm going to share with you here in just a moment. This is a big week for the church. It's also a weird week for the church all over the world. We have finally come to grips with the fact that we won't see each other face to face during what we know as Holy Week. But I want to tell you before we go any further that this year the Neighborhood Church is celebrating Easter twice. We're celebrating Easter next Sunday, April 12th on our Facebook page in a live stream way. But man, we're going to get part two Easter when we first are able to get together face to face. So we're going to have our live stream Easter Sunday. But man, the very first chance we can get to get back together as God's people face to face, Easter part two. We're all going to come out of our tombs and we're going to blow the roof off and we're going to celebrate Because Jesus will still be alive, still be risen, whenever it is, we can meet together again. But until then, I hope that you're okay. I hope that you're healthy. I hope you're doing well. We're going to pray. I'm going to read a story. And then I'm going to share with you a few observations about what it looks like to follow Jesus. To go without knowing the full scope of his mission the full scope of his plan. I think we can get going without knowing the whole way forward. That's where we're headed. But first, we're going to pray. If you've been a part of the Neighborhood Church or visited one of our worship gatherings, you've probably heard these four words that help get us going in prayer. Here's the four words. You ready? Thank you and would you. Okay? These words came to me from the late, great Chuck Miller, who is an author and teacher of spiritual formation for leaders. But this was a dude that practiced what he preached. This guy has been with Jesus. And he gave us these these words, these two sentences, thank you and would you. And he helped get us thinking about how we can be praying together. So I love these two sentences, thank you and would you, because we get to fill in the blank and we just keep filling in the blanks. And there's something elemental about these phrases, thank you and would you. It helps us recognize what we have with gratitude. So we say thank you, but it also we request what we need with expectation. So we recognize what we have with gratitude. And when you pray this way, you realize there's always something to be thankful for. 
even now. But it also, we request what we need with expectation that God can actually give us what we need. It's elemental. There's always something to say thank you for, no matter how bad it looks. And there's always something we need from God. It's fundamental. It's elemental. And this is how I want us to start this evening. Praying with thank you and praying with would you. So in just a few moments, I'm going to ask you to fill in the blanks in the comments section. In just a few moments, when we start praying this way, you can type out thank you for and fill in the blank. And then after that, you can say, would you and fill in the blank. But while you're thinking of things to say thank you and would you for, let me tell you this. This is a great way to pray with your kids. This is a great way to pray before a meal. What are some of the things you're saying thank you for? What are some of the things you're asking God for? Would you? This is a great way to pray with your kids before you're going to bed. What's something that made you say thank you, God, today? And what's something looking ahead to tomorrow that we say, God, would you please, and let them fill in the blank. Not only is it a great way to play, pray with kids, it's a great way to pray if you're a journaler. Shout out to my journalers that got to get writing when they're praying. In fact, if you go to our website, tncgarland.com, and you find our resources and you scroll down below our sermons, you'll see a guide. I'm pretty sure it's still there that has a PDF where you can write thank you at the top and just fill in the blanks. And then you can write would you on another column and fill in the blanks. So it's a great way for my journalers out there. These two sentences, thank you, would you, are also great ways to pray for others. Okay, so hold that person in your head and in your heart to bring them before the presence of the Lord and to just run through the list of what you're thankful for. It's amazing what it does to your heart and your view of that person when you've got to will yourself to say thank you. God, thank you for how you've created them. Thank you for their health. Thank you for their generosity. And then you can move to God, would you bless them? Would you keep them? You get the drift. Thank you, would you? It's a great way to pray. If you've been around the neighborhood church, you're used to praying this way, and I'm inviting you to pray it virtually. So let's take a deep breath. Wherever you are, understand that God is with you, that God is for you, that God is longing to be gracious to you. So the invitation is to be present to wake up to the presence of God right where you are. And let's say thank you. Just take a moment. Somebody, brave, get the ball rolling. Type something in that comment section. Thank you for, and let us know what you're thankful for. God, thank you. I say, God, thank you for life and breath. Thank you for another day. God, thank you that my Wi-Fi and internet is working to broadcast right now because earlier on Netflix, it didn't look so good. But God, thank you. Thank you. What are you saying thank you for? I believe that we have reasons to say thanks even in a time such as this. And now take another breath right where you are. And would you finish this sentence, where you're sitting or where you're typing, God, would you? 
God, would you? Boy, the need seems so much. God, would you bless and keep our loved ones? God, would you prevent the spread of this virus? God, would you provide for the needs of those that are vulnerable and desperate? And God, would you move us in love toward our neighbor, even our neighbors three feet away from us in this home? God, would you? God, would you? So Lord, we say thank you. And Lord, we say would you? And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus who gives us reasons to say thank you and who gives us what we need when we pray, would you? So God, we surrender this time to you. We ask your blessing upon each and every person that is hearing this message in this time. We know that you are with us, that you have not left us, that you have not abandoned us. And whatever you've brought us to, we trust that you'll bring us through. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, in just a few moments, I'm going to read a famous passage from Mark chapter 11. It's a passage that is often read and preached on what's known as Palm Sunday. This weekend is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday kicks off Easter week, or as we call it, Holy Week. It's the week that leads up to Easter and includes Maundy Thursday. It's not Monday, it's Maundy Thursday that commemorates the Last Supper of Jesus with his disciples before he's betrayed. Then we have Good Friday, which commemorates the crucifixion to behold the cross, the suffering, the enthronement of the King of Jews, who's the King of the world. And we'll do a live stream this Friday at seven o'clock here on our Facebook page. But then Holy Week also caps off with Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. And as I said a moment ago, the Neighborhood Church is doing two Easter's. We're doing a live stream next Sunday at 10 a.m., April 12th, but then we're doing Easter the very first time we can get together face-to-face. We're going to have us a powerful Easter time, and I might even wear a tie. I don't know. But Palm Sunday is what kicks that whole week off, and Palm Sunday commemorates Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem. It's called Palm Sunday because people were celebrating. People were partying. They were already going to Jerusalem to party for the Passover, which is a huge festival. It was like the festival for Israel, where they celebrated how their ancestors were rescued from the oppression of Egypt through the Red Sea and into freedom as God's chosen people. So they were already amped already on their way to Passover. The crowds were lining the streets. They were starting to party. Think New Orleans, Mardi Gras, New Year's Eve, except the religious version of that. So everybody's amped up and they've got these palms. They're celebrating this victory in anticipation of God's wonderful deliverance again. And Jesus and his followers mingle and mix with this crowd as they go up the road and into the city. Now, Palm Sunday is often talked about in terms of Jesus's triumphal entry. But this is really interesting because this year I'm thinking about Palm Sunday less triumphal and more confrontational. 
What we're about to see in Mark chapter 11 is that Jesus is riding into the city, not so much in triumph, but in confrontation. He's going to the center of the political and religious storm. You've got Rome ruling over the Jewish people in that city, and they're trying to keep the peace. You've got the storm winds brewing of the religious establishment that is not hip to Jesus, loving and blessing and welcoming all those outsiders. They are not hip to Jesus, kind of skirting the rules and reorienting God's way and God's kingdom around him. And Jesus is riding in to confront the political and religious opposition. Palm Sunday, confrontational entry. That's what we're up to. I'm going to read a passage in Mark 11. We're going to talk about going with Jesus into this week. And you're going to see at least two things that we're invited to give. You with me? All right. I'm going to read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. All right. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. By the way, those two cities are like the suburbs of Jerusalem. At Passover, it's packed. All the rooms are booked. So they're staying at like a La Quinta in the burbs. And they would just walk in and out of Jerusalem during that festival. That's what's going on. Now, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to that village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Which is, hey, why are you stealing my colt? (laughs) Say, the Lord needs it and he will send it back here shortly. Verse four, they went and found a colt outside in the street tied to a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, uh, what are you doing untying that colt? And then they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Pause real quick. Make note of this. Half of our story so far is Jesus's plans to get a cult. We're halfway through our reading, and it's all been this James Bond, Jason Bourne plot to go and get that one cult from that one guy, and if they give you trouble, tell them Jesus needs it. That's crazy. Hold on to that. Ready? Here we go. Verse 8. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches They had cut in the fields, hence Palm Sunday. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. These dudes are already amped up. They're already expecting God to do some powerful stuff. And then Jesus is riding on this donkey. They look up. They see Jesus' followers. They're waving their branches. They're shouting songs of praise from Psalm 118. The mood is palpable. You want to be at this party. It's crazy. But here's the thing we're going to talk about. They don't even know what they're celebrating. They don't even know what kind of king is coming to them. They have no idea that he's not riding in on a war horse. He's riding in on a colt in humility 
and peace and confrontation with the opposition. Man. Verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and then he went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Spoiler alert, that's kind of an anticlimactic ending, isn't it? We're going to talk about that at the end of our time together. But before we get into our story again, I want to read a prayer for Palm Sunday. This is from the Book of Common Prayer. This is an Episcopal book, and there's prayers in this book for every day of Holy Week and even after Easter. And they're wonderful, time-tested prayers. So before we get back into our story, I want to read this prayer. Almighty and ever-living God, in your tender love for the human race, you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon him our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, giving us the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering and also share in his resurrection. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, Easter was my late grandmother Mary Lou's favorite holiday. And you could tell it. You could just see it. You knew it. She didn't have to tell you. You just knew that this woman loved Easter. Every Sunday, we would gather up at her house we always had these traditional games that we would play and we would have the traditional foods that we would eat and she always hosted. So we all gathered up, we parked our cars and you could see the yard was transformed. She put out her little cutouts, her little statues. She put signs in the yard. It just alerted you to the fact that some lady that loved Easter lived in that house. And then we'd open up the door and her house was transformed also. I remember in every one of their houses, they had the same glass coffee table. And in a given week, it would have the magazines, the remote controls, some coasters. But dude, on Easter, she cleaned that thing off and she added all these handcrafted rabbits and Easter eggs. She put fake grass out there. This woman loved Easter. She transformed her house. She transformed her yard And she also transformed her head. She would bring out the most killer Easter bonnets you have ever seen. In fact, bonnet is not even a word to justify it. This was like an Easter sombrero. It was an Easter hat. It was white and it had pastels. It had like grass and flowers and it was a whole thing. And what I love about Easter is even in a casual church like ours, where we're mostly just kind of wearing jeans and maybe a collared shirt, mostly t-shirts, y'all, when Easter happens, we take our clothing game like a level up. Y'all, if you would have seen Mary Lou, my sweet, petite, beautiful, classy grandma, if you saw her on Easter, she took that thing 10 levels up. She'd put on the Easter hat to where if you never even saw her or met her, the first moment you'd see her on Easter, you'd know this woman was serious. It was her statement. That's all you needed to see. This woman was all about Easter. Here's why I say all this. Jesus is making a statement. 
and Mark's Easter hat is this story. Mark is trying to get our attention and alert us to a statement that Jesus is making. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey at this time, in this way, with this crowd, is making a statement. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. In fact, you can tell that this story is the big Easter hat demanding our attention, trying to get us to see, because the story that Mark's telling up until this point is trying to alert us to the fact that something is going on. If you have a Bible open in front of you, or if you have it on your phone, scroll back to chapter 10. You see that Jesus predicts his death for the third time to his closest friends. He knows he's going into the middle of the storm. He knows he's going into a hotbed when he goes into Jerusalem on Passover. He knows that these people are going to execute him. And his friends are like, I don't see a hat. What are you talking about? I don't get it. Then the next scene that Mark tells us is that two of those friends, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, they're asking Jesus as they're walking toward Jerusalem, hey, Jesus, when your political coup finally takes place, can we get two prime positions in your cabinet? And Jesus is saying, you don't know what you're asking. You don't understand what I'm going to do. He says, Your kingdoms are all about lording over and oppressing people. What I'm doing is trying to give my life for the world. What I'm doing is trying to serve the world that has been oppressed and afflicted by all those other kind of kingdoms. You don't see the hat. Then, as if Mark is bringing a highlighter on our Bibles, the very last scene before what we just read, Jesus is walking on the road and he meets a blind man. And the blind man gets Jesus's attention by calling him the son of David. Guess who's called Jesus the son of David in the gospel of Mark? Nobody yet except the blind guy. And the blind guy calls him son of David because he, while blind, sees that Jesus is the king that's the heir to great David's throne in Jerusalem. The blind guy calls Jesus a king. And Mark says, then he received his sight. Mark has the Easter hat on. He's waving his arms up and down. He's saying, do you see it? Do you see it right now? facing Easter without celebrating face-to-face. Do you see it? Jesus is still king. You, social distancing at your home, the walls are closing in. Do you still see it? You, seeing the cross ahead of Jesus, the garden, the lonely, sad dinner, do you still see what the disciples aren't? That Jesus is a king. He just looks different from all the other kings you've ever known. Here's what I want you to understand. The statement that Jesus is making, that Mark wants us to see, is that Jesus knows we don't know, but he's still calling us to go with him to the end. Jesus knows that we don't know his whole plan, 
Jesus knows that we don't know what lies ahead of us. Jesus knows that we can't fully understand this kind of king that's enthroned on a cross. But he's still inviting us to go with him. This week, he's inviting you to walk with him. And I can't do it for you. We can provide videos and you can look up wonderful resources. But that step is for you to take. That step is for you to pay attention and see that he is king even if he's a king unlike any other king we ever expected. Jesus knows that we don't know, but he's still calling us to go with him to the end. That's the journey that we're invited to Easter week. Now, we're going to see two things. That our going without knowing involves giving. It involves giving something up, and it involves laying down, giving up our expectations. That's what we're going to see in the last few moments we have together. Hope you're still with me on this Palm Sunday. I told you that the statement is being made, but what is the statement? I'll tell you that it's Jesus thinks he's a king. And we can see that in Mark's gospel because half of the story is about getting and riding a cult. Remember when I read that earlier? Seven of the 11 verses is his plan to get and ride a cult. That's a big deal, right? I want you to tell you the most important question you can ask when you're writing, uh, reading the Bible, okay? Here's the most important question you can ask when reading the Bible. You ready? Why did someone write this down? Okay? This is the most important question you can ask when reading the Bible. Why did someone write this down? Of all the stories that had been told and retold and collected and had shaped the community of faith, passed down from person to person and generation to generation, why all of a sudden would Mark, when he decides to write his story of Jesus down, why would he spend seven verses, of course Mark didn't have verses then, why would he spend seven verses telling us about a cult? Why would he tell us that these people threw their jackets, their cloaks on the ground? Why would he tell us they're waving palm branches? To tell us the statement Jesus is making, Jesus thinks he's a king riding in to the holy city of Jerusalem. Jesus spent his whole ministry walking around the towns of Galilee until he rides a colt. Because kings don't walk, they ride colts. Jesus goes and gets this cult that he makes a big deal about. Nobody's ever ridden on it. That's because no one else rides a king's cult except a king. So Mark wants us to see this. And finally, what Mark wants us to see is echoes of an ancient prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that echoes what the statement is that Jesus is making. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, which is the spiritual name for Jerusalem. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. And y'all know they were shouting. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, but also lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why did Mark write this down? Because he wants us to see that Jesus is making a statement 
that this is a royal procession of a king unlike any king that they've ever seen. The crowd doesn't know what kind of king he is. They're just waving branches because that's what you do. How many of God's people in the church just go through the motions because that's what you do, right? They even sing the song Hosanna, which means save us, God. They found those verses in Psalm 118. It's a psalm that they would sing during Passover week. They're singing the songs, but are they just going through the motions? They don't know what kind of king he is. And Jesus knows that they don't know, but he's still inviting them along the journey. The disciples They are still asking for positions of power. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. It's not about being on top. It's about being underneath to lift up all. They don't know, but Jesus still invites them to go with him. The owner of that cult doesn't know what his cult is going to be used for. Heck, he had probably been saving it for some religious or sacred purpose. Maybe he was growing it up into a mighty cult for some other mighty purpose. But here's what you want to know. Here's the first thing I want you to see. As you go without knowing, it's going to involve giving what you can when you're asked. It involves giving what you can when Jesus asks for it. I think that this is an interesting time for a number of reasons because you might feel paralyzed. How can I help? How can I do? This week I had a conversation with another person about uh, finances for churches and nonprofits. And he was asking how our church was doing and by God's grace, so far so good. And I told him, but look, this is only the fourth week that we're not meeting face to face. So we'll just have to see month to month and week to week. And he paused on the phone and he goes, you know, the thing is that I've found that living my life is really not a month to month proposition. It's a moment to moment proposition. I don't have a choice to do it any other way. And I was like, thank you for reminding me that we can make these huge declarations to follow Jesus with our whole life. But the only life that you have to live is this moment right now. And Jesus is inviting you in your now, in this time, in this place. What's the now that you have to offer? For this man, when asked, it was for a cult, and he gave him a cult. For you, it's how you say what you say to the people you're sharing a house with. I don't know if you're like me, but I feel paralyzed by the needs that I read in the news, the needs that I see financially, the needs that I see with people getting their jobs furloughed. And I told Amy this week, I was like, man, this is too big. But when one need comes through, when someone asks for one thing, I feel like that's the opportunity to meet it. I can't solve a trillion dollar financial stimulus for everybody. But for this one person I come into contact with, is that a need that I can give? I think when you go forward without knowing what's ahead, without knowing what Jesus is up to, I think in this moment, the invitation for you is to do what you can in this now, in this moment. 
I think you have an opportunity to give him your attention. I think you have an opportunity to give the people you share a house with love. I've been thinking this week about the fact that my six-year-old and eight-year-old will not remember the news headlines. My six-year-old and eight-year-old will not remember the stories they see or hear on the TV. But you know what they're going to remember? That one time where we were at home and the love and community and culture my parents created for us when we couldn't go anywhere else. The one thing you can give to the people you're sharing a home with is a community, a culture, a cultivated area of love and peace and patience. They're going to remember their time in the home that you're giving to them. So going without knowing involves giving what we can when asked. Giving what you can when you're asked whether that's to some charity, whether that's to offset some tangible needs from friends that you're going to hear is losing their job, give what you can when asked and trust that he will lead you to it and he'll also lead you through it. The second thing I think we'll see that we're invited to give is to give up some of our own expectations. Our biggest relational breakdowns, whether it's in a marriage or a family or friendship, is when expectations are not met right? That's when conflict and breakdown happens. You expected this person to do this or that, but it wasn't met. I think this happens with God also. We hoist all of these expectations on what he should do. We hoist all of these expectations on when he should do it. We hoist all these expectations on what I want and I need and me, me, me. And when he doesn't answer in our time, or in our way, we have a similar relational breakdown. When I was going through some notes on what I had said in previous Palm Sundays in my preaching and teaching, I came across a note from one of our former pastors, Kathy Kiesler. She's still a part of our church. She uh, was a longtime preacher and leader in the neighborhood church. And I was so glad that I came across this note of something that she said that I think speaks to this situation. She said, when our expectations aren't met, when things don't go our way, a lot of times we can doubt God. Here's what she said. Doubt is an invitation for dialogue with God. Let me say that again. Our doubt is an invitation for dialogue with God. We think that doubt means that we can't go to God. We think that doubt means that we're less than. We think that doubt means we're a bad Christian. Let me tell you what doubt means. You're human. Let me tell you what doubt means. You can't see in real time the mission and work of our king. But you are invited to turn your doubt into a dialogue. Because with dialogue, you can get everything out into the open and you can listen back and be reassured. And I promise you that the king you thought you wanted is never as good as the king you actually needed. The God that you thought you had all figured out is not as good as the God we actually do have and could never figure out. This is the journey of the moment to moment, giving our expectations over to him and allowing him to show us a better way and a better king. We go ahead not knowing fully who he is or what he's up to, 
but he's still inviting us to go with him through the end. That crowd on their way to the Passover festival has all their kind of expectations on what kind of king he ought to be. I told you earlier that word Hosanna is from the Bible in Psalm 118. It's a word that means save now, right? Save now. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Get this thing done. They have their expectations that he's coming to liberate them just like the Passover so many generations before. They have their expectations. Then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They had believed that God would return to his temple. Oh, come on, let's roll out the red carpet. Come on into our temple. Look, it's big, it's huge, it's beautiful. They have no idea that Jesus is going to come and cast judgment on the temple. Man, y'all been going through the motions. Y'all been forsaking the poor. Y'all have been so far from me. This place, God's coming, but he's coming to bring judgment and reorient his presence around the king they never expected. Finally, their songs, they say, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, which is their own way of saying, he's going to come back and he's going to bring us back to the top, baby. Our king, in our time, with our town, in our temple, in our way, and Jesus will be enthroned on a cross. We have to give up our expectations and trust that the more we go with him, the more we'll see that he's actually better than what we wanted. He's who we needed. Jesus knows that you don't know what's ahead, but he's still calling us to go with him. And he's inviting us to turn our doubts into dialogue. Then we'll see that our king is big enough to handle it and he's better than what we expected. So I want to close off this story, which comes to a strange conclusion, don't you think? They make this huge procession in. Jesus has made his statement that he's this kind of king on a cult amidst all these songs, amidst all these cloaks laid on the ground. Because you wouldn't throw your jacket on the ground for a cult to stomp over for your buddy. You would do that for a king. They've got the palms waving for a king. All this hype and then what? So he could look around the temple and then go back home? Huh. Last week, I rewatched the first movie in the Hobbit trilogy. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, and I wanted to love those Hobbit movies so much. And I liked them okay. But they took this little book, The Hobbit, for kids, and they spread it out to like nine hours of a movie. And the first movie is two hours and 49 minutes long. And here's the plot. A little hobbit meets up with a bunch of dwarfs, and they decide to go to a mountain. That's the whole movie. Two hours, 49 minutes. The last scene, they go through all of this trial and travails. They fight trolls and fight scary guys and they battle and whatever. And the end of it is they go up on a hill and they look out into the long distance and they see a mountain. The movie, two hours, 49 minutes, all builds up for them to get up on one mountain to look at another mountain. That's it. And I was sitting there reading this passage again that Mark tells us, and I'm thinking, yo, that seems like that kind of ending. 
But the question is, is this a letdown or is this a setup? And I think what Mark wants us to see is, no, no, no. This is not a letdown. This is not anticlimactic. This is actually the calm before the confrontational storm blows up. Jesus is going to spend the last act of Mark's story, five chapters, confronting abuse, opposition, misunderstanding. He's going to confront Rome. He's going to confront darkness. And Mark is giving us this little peek, this little statement to set up the confrontation of the cross and the resurrection. I'll close with this. We take our girls to the doctor because they're still young enough to get a lot of those checkups. And if you have parents, or if you're a parent of little kids, you know that in those early years, you gotta go and they gotta get a lot of shots. And so every car ride to the doctor's office had a conversation that went like this. Mommy, are we gonna get a shot today? Daddy, are they gonna stick us and take blood today? Mommy, are we going to have to pee in a cup? <laughs> Which is crazy because these little girls hate all of that stuff. And by the way, it should be noted that there are thousands and thousands of children where this is their reality every day. Man, how am I going to feel today? They're getting treatment in hospitals. Man, do I have to do this again? Do I have to do this again? And we're very fortunate. We're very blessed that by God's grace, right now our six-year-old and our eight-year-old are healthy, but it's hard, that conversation, to the doctor's office every time. And what we say most often is this. We don't know. I don't know if you're going to get a shot. I don't know if you're going to need to get a blood draw. I don't know if it's going to hurt. I don't know. But I do know that we're going to be with you. And you begin to see their wheels start to turn. And you begin to see this kind of steely resolve in an eight-year-old and six-year-old kind of way where they march into the waiting room and they're busying themselves and they're kind of doing their thing, going about it. But you can tell in the back of their mind, they don't know what's ahead. And then their name gets called and we walk back to the exam room and they have to kind of hop up on the exam table and they don't know what's coming. And it's a little bit more forefront at this point. They don't know the suffering or not that's ahead. And this is the same thing for us. I don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. I don't know what Tuesday's going to hold. I don't know what suffering or discomfort or change and disruption in our daily lives is going to come. But I do have to trust that I can go without knowing because I know that he'll bring me to it but he'll also bring me through it. Because before we get to Easter Sunday, we've got to go through the pain of this journey of Holy Week. Because the crowd, they're not going to be with Jesus in the garden when he's praying and desperate and sweating blood. And his disciples are not going to be standing behind him when he's in that midnight trial being spat upon, slapped, tortured, humiliated. They're not standing behind him. And his friends aren't going to go with him on the way out of the city. Man, I'm telling you, it's going to be a lot different than the way he came in. Nobody's singing songs of deliverance. They're mocking him. 
Nobody's going to be waving palm branches. They're going to be throwing their fists. And Jesus is not going to be riding on a donkey. He's going to be stumbling through the crowded streets, bruised, bloodied, and carrying the beams of a wooden cross that they'll nail him to. Those crowds, those disciples, they're not going with him to grieve in awe at the foot of the cross. But we're invited to. And I don't know what it's going to look like for you, but I can't do it for you. But I'm going to invite you, because he's inviting you, to walk with him this week. What prayers are you offered to pray? What passages of scripture are you going to follow along with? What needs are going to be asked of you that you're going to give toward? What people around you need encouragement and hope? Each step, each moment, an invitation to go with Jesus on this journey, trusting that even though you don't know what's ahead, you do know who's going to be with you. And you can give up your expectations. You can give up what needs to be given. But trust that each step is an invitation to a journey with our King. And that's the invitation for you right now where you are. I want to close with this prayer. Hosanna, King of all, you reign over all. Reign in our lives, triumph over evil, and teach us to follow in your footsteps. So may you walk with him this week. Amen.